Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. It's great to occasionally get away from it all, but what if some people really, really, really needed to get completely away from absolutely all? So a pair of conversations that have come up on our show often are how you hide spaceships or civilizations, and how civilizations would look if they were principally fleet-based. We explored both in detail in our episodes Nomadic Space-Based Fleets and the Fermi Paradox Hidden Civilizations, but we never really discussed this combined notion, a civilization on the run trying to stay quiet and escape pursuit. This is much akin to what we see from the Battlestar Galactica franchise, original or reboot, and the Korans from Mass Effect, but I wanted to bring some more realism into the concept. That's where we get our title for today, Escaping the Galaxy, because as we'll see as we examine the issue, that almost has to be your long-term solution. It's also a good excuse for us to discuss the logistics of launching across the intergalactic void with no intent of returning but surviving to arrive elsewhere. As usual, we'll stick to inside known science for today's discussion, which means no FTL or magic cloaking drives. The former at least is not a disadvantage for flight either, after all if someone kicked your butt so decisively you're willing to flee for centuries at a minimum, odds are they have the same or better technology as you. Especially when you're in flight and not really in a position to be building lots of labs and research facilities. Outside of science fiction, while stress and necessity can often lead to breakthroughs and innovation, very little new science gets done during chaos and very little solid engineering and infrastructure develops. There are plenty of real-world examples of genius polymaths who made tons of discoveries and an advanced spacefaring civilization might have a lot of posthumans with mind augmentation, but your enemy should have these too and more of them than your tattered remnant. Plus, if you had any tech they didn't have, then they have a lot of time and your ruins to dig through and retro-engineer that tech from, and they will too. It is vastly easier to design a car from thousands of broken examples of them than to invent one from scratch especially when you've eyewitness accounts and videos of them in action. So if you have FTL technology, your enemy has FTL technology soon after. It might give you a head start, as might a superior conventional sublight drive, but an enemy pursuing you over thousands of light years without FTL needs to split up a lot and needs centuries to converge even a few local armadas if one spots you. A FTL base fleet presumably can converge faster, resupply faster, and get tech updates from home. They are also not undergoing generational drift, since they aren't chasing you for centuries or longer. If you are fleeing an enemy armada sent to wipe you out, and doing that say 19% of light speed while your enemy can move at 20%, and you launch the 5 light year advantage from a colony on the edge of your main civilization, they need 25 years to get to where you left from while you're already 4.75 light years further away. Another generation of travel for them to catch up if you stop there, which you won't. In a flat out chase they'll take 500 years to catch up to you 100 light years away. There's also over 10,000 star systems within 100 light years, so if all they knew was where you left from and at what maximum speed, that's how many potential places they need to be sending ships or probes to. Incidentally if you're wondering how to calculate your time to overtake someone in a straight stern chase, you divide the distance they have as a head start by the difference of your speeds. You then multiply that time by your speed or their speed to see how far you've covered. 
If someone's 5 miles ahead of me walking 3 miles per hour and I walk 4 miles per hour, the difference in our speed is 1 mile per hour, so I'll cover that 5 mile head start in 5 hours, and since I'm going 4 miles per hour, 5 hours later I've caught them 20 miles away. This works the same whether you're chasing folks in light years or metric, but it's trickier if you're chasing them from an angle as you have to do trigonometry at that point. You can also use negative speeds to plot the time and location for two objects running at each other rather than a chase. Math lesson complete, no quiz to follow. Now we already spend a lot of time talking about how to hide spaceships in our stealth spaceships episode, and under known science it's pretty hard, but that's in the context of you hiding as you sneak into someone's fortified and developed star system, not when you're running from your own and pursuit would take place in essentially uncolonized space. How do you make the getaway? if you know an enemy fleet is coming your way and you have no real chance to stop them. It helps to have a lead time and a known trajectory for them because an easy option if you've got both is to shadow your flight with noise, potentially just sending part of your own fleet out to engage them, or your interceptor missiles and time detonations, attacks, etc. to when your escape fleet is firing its engines. It would be pretty hard to accelerate from a stop to interstellar speeds while covering the whole thing, So this is more of a situation where they knew you were fleeing and you used the noise or blasts to fire your engines to change vectors a bit, and you now have a cone of possible trajectories they had to investigate. That could be a pretty wide cone too. Consider, a blast that obscured your engine for 100 seconds lets you pull potentially a 10G burn for that time that changes your velocity by an entire kilometer per second. Now that is fairly small as a speed at interplanetary scales, let alone interstellar, but it builds up. That ship doing 20% of light speed, fully 60,000 kilometers per second, will have covered 10 light years half a century later, and from that new 1 kilometer per second velocity will be as much as 1.6 billion kilometers off the expected course. That's over 10 astronomical units, peanuts in interstellar terms, but the entire value of our solar system out past Saturn. It makes line and ambush pretty tricky if you've got units from other directions that could beat them there and they're running pretty dark and you haven't got great sensors on the spot and all over that destination solar system, then you probably wouldn't see them at all. What's more, there's no reason they have to head toward a solar system, odds are good that even if they need to stop to take on more fuel and raw materials, a smaller dwarf planet hanging around in the empty void between star systems should do the trick. Another thing to keep in mind is when we talk about detecting stealthy spaceships, We often mean with giant detectors or telescopes that might be kilometers wide or even bigger. A spaceship might carry such a system or be able to rapidly fabricate them in solar systems they were traveling to to ambush you in, but those might be very hard to use on the run, because they'd be getting shoved on by interstellar gas at the speed your ship moved, and even ignoring the force pushing against you and slowing you, and the wear and tear on those detectors, both of which are immense problems. Billions of motes of gas and dust slamming into you at relativistic speeds is going to generate a huge amount of noise, and much of it in one of the general frequencies you're hunting for the other ship in, so picking up ships while you chase them is much harder than with stationary systems in a place you control. If your escape fleet is considerable enough and can self-replicate to some extent, you could try to deplete the useful star systems on your way from useful fusion fuel, especially if deuterium fusion is feasible but H1 is not, or uses methods to shut down stars so that your enemy cannot use them for laser highways to chase you or has a harder time doing it, and you're depleting it by potentially building more escape craft and more roadblocks to hunters, 
Though using up a system this way will definitely let them know you're there, once a lot of your activities reaches them some years or decades later. So the job of the hunter is no easy matter, you're essentially throwing probes at everything looking for a ping or a whiff of a trail, and those will be there, but trying to find evidence of a rocket flame or ion trail a decade after it passed through a bit of interstellar void is not easy. Mind you, it is doable, but not easy and if you find it, the reconstructed trail will be uncertain. Another cone of possible speeds and trajectories built off noticing something like one part per million increase in helium in the local interstellar medium, showing outlier speeds well above what we expect from local hot gas and average to a net speed opposite the direction that ship went. Hot ions flying out of the engine of a fast-moving spaceship have a very different speed and direction from what that ship or rocket plume would otherwise produce. Here we can discuss some strategy though. Interstellar gas comes in a wide variety but six fairly distinct types, molecular clouds, cold and warm neutral medium, warm ionized medium, H2 ionized hydrogen star formation nebulae, and coronal gas. That last, coronal gas or hot ionized medium, gets that name from being the coronal regions around the galaxy where the density is the lowest and the particles fastest having effective temperatures in the low millions of Kelvin, and parallel to what we'd expect a high-velocity ion drive to kick out, exhaust velocities of hundreds of kilometers per second, and also what you need to escape a galaxy. Out here, near the fringe, there's way less gas around for your exhaust to interact with, which has pros and cons for detection, as particles colliding with very high speed differences can give off a radiation signature whereas it not colliding much makes it much easier to sniff out a precise direction when you find some of those exhaust particles. Incidentally I said sniffing for one part per million, but that's likely on the high side, concentration may be way way lower, but it's also not as hard to detect as you might think. Uh, Keep in mind a nuclear explosion would be naked eye visible to us millions of kilometers away, and if we imagine looking at one ten million kilometers away with our eyeball, surface area about one square centimeter, then that means only about 1 in 13 trillion trillion photons that that event produced reach your eyeball. We can discern very high resolutions and tiny changes of color with our rods and cones and the supercomputer worth of visual processing data in our brain. And yet, we can build far better detectors than that and I think we should assume an interstellar civilization could outdo us too. And spaceship engines are fundamentally on par with nuclear devices in terms of their output. Now here's the strategy option. You are fleeing so you probably gamble on them having a harder time tracking you through thick cold gas like a molecular cloud than thin hot gas, and even better through hot dense gas, one of those H2 regions where big hot blue stars form. You will leave a wake, but maybe one too rapidly obscured to be useful, same as a boat's wake on the ocean is not very handy for tracking it a day after it passed by. This can also be relevant to whether you're using a propulsive ramjet device, which would work better in denser parts of the intergalactic medium. Arguably those regions where you're better cloaked may simultaneously be regions you can accelerate harder, assuming you can make a Bucerd ramjet or black hole variant of one walk. See our Fusion Proportion or Black Hole Ships episodes for discussion of those technologies. There is a wonderfully realistic example of a multi-year sub-light speed chase in Alistair Reynolds' novel Redemption Arc, and another longer example in his other novel House of Suns, which discusses tricks in detection involving very low concentrations of particles. So aiming toward one of those blue giants isn't a bad option though they're not super common either, so it might be a place folks went to wait and see if you showed up at. 
Still, they are big enough that you could potentially do a fairly obscured burn while passing behind one, and could also potentially be extending solar panels and scoops to both alter your trajectory and get some energy material from it. That won't be super subtle, but while your pursuers will likely see it, they would need many centuries for the hounds hunting other trails to even alter their course for pursuit, and your new trajectory would be pretty blurred. The other big trick though would probably be to aim right for a red giant. The biggest and least dense you might aim for, head right into its photosphere many AU across, and change your trajectory while flying through. Running into a sun sounds like a suicidal strategy, at best akin to saving the last bullet for yourself, but in truth red giants are so thin that you could plow right through one's outer layers. You'd heat up a bit and lose speed, but that's an amazing place to be turning your angle where no one is going to see you use your engines or how you tacked into the solar wind with sails. Red giants are also way more common than blue stars. They're also very bright due to their size, which is helping mask you, but also means your ship needs to be very mirror-like in order to avoid absorbing a lot of that light, and overheating before you even get to the distance from the giants on par with Earth's from our sun. Assuming you could pull either or both off, that would be my two escape strategies with a fleet to shake main pursuit and force them to either give up or split up. So you either use lots of explosions and noise to conceal your exit from your system, where you know the timing on those explosions, and or use a nearby red giant to pass through and shift your course and speed a lot. You also probably know how good your enemy's detectors are likely to be, and could run your own engines just a bit under that threshold for prolonged periods, and if that was something small like just a millimeter per second per second acceleration, well that might take you an hour to get to a change of velocity akin to a quick jog, but a decade of doing that is 315 kilometers per second of speed change, a four thousandth of light speed, and close to the galactic escape velocity in its own right, and enough that our hypothetical ship moving at a fifth of light speed is now trillions of kilometers off expected course after a mere century of travel. One advantage the hunted have is that if an opposition ship finds out it's in the wrong solar system, ten light years to the side of your trajectory, then unless it has a huge speed advantage it will need hundreds of light years to close up on you again. Using our 19% light speed hunted ship and 20% light speed pursuit ship example, that pursuer will need 160 years to catch up coming from that side angle, again not a math class but that was forming a right triangle whose size were 10 light years, and 0.19t where t is our intercept travel time, and our hypotenuse is 0.20t. Solve for T as normal with Pythagoras, again, not a math class, no quiz coming. Now an inevitable point someone would raise is that such civilizations have the ability to not only throw huge armadas after you, but potentially growing ones too, able to pick up resources at new systems to build more of themselves with. However, if we're assuming rough technological parity, you presumably have that same ability to replicate more ships and need the same sorts of times and efforts to posit in systems to do this. And remember, by and large there's very little in space to slow a ship in motion, pausing to refuel means burning a ton of fuel to stop and using more to start back up. This might be easy enough to do, your fuel might just be something hyperabundant like deuterium, and you stop to resupply or pick up raw material to replicate, but it does take time to slow down. Loosely speaking, if you could accelerate at 1G indefinitely, one week for every 2% of light speed, Faster burns are better, slower much worse though much less visible. 
Now, slowborns would seem the preference of the pursued and fastborns the prerogative of the pursuer, and that's mostly true, but the pursuer doesn't really want to be giving away their trajectory either, as it makes it easier to deploy concealment efforts and traps against them. As an example, spinning up some sailor graphene, just a few atomic widths thick and hundreds of kilometers wide, might only cost you a few tons of available matter on your ship. You can push against that sail to give yourself a bit of a concealed and unexpected trajectory while leaving it moving fairly quickly towards your pursuing ship who might ram right into it, but you can only do that if you're pretty sure where they are because while a sheet the size of Texas seems like a big blanket to drop on someone, it's really tiny compared to interstellar space, and it's usually pretty unlikely anyone would follow you directly in favor of being just a bit off to the side especially if they have a fleet. Of course you might have a fleet too, which offers a scatter strategy, and it's not really as worrisome that some of you might be captured and interrogated for the expected rendezvous point since that data could be pretty tightly kept and on a nicely encrypted drive the navigator could atomize if you did get boarded by the enemy, which is vastly harder than blowing them up would be. But you might not want to rendezvous anyway. Consider an escape fleet benefits from sticking together to share the minimal scavenged resources, but it's entirely possible that strategy wouldn't be necessary. If every ship has a 3D printer, a complete archive of important data, and is capable of supplying feedstock to that printer from available interstellar materials, then you don't really need to hold together. In Battlestar Galactica they keep a running tally of the population of humanity at around 50,000, the pittance of a few parts per million that survived of their 12 colonies, and there's an assumption they need to stick together so they don't get genetically bottlenecked and produce a lot of mutant idiots with three thumbs. Now we tend to wildly exaggerate the downsides of inbreeding, marrying your first cousin has been a time-honored tradition for centuries at a time in tons of cultures, and even when it wasn't, your typical tribal village had nearly everyone at at most third or fourth cousins, with the occasional interjection of a few new bloodlines as migrant, raiders, or journeyman crafters and such. Some fleet of 50,000 isn't really at any risk of genetic bottlenecking and even if it broke into 10 fleets of 5,000 each, they'd be mostly okay. Indeed you could go a lot smaller, and more importantly it would only matter in the absence of technology. You can grab sperm, egg, and DNA samples from everyone in the fleet and put them on ice with modern tech to distribute to every splinter fleet. Indeed you can digitize that DNA, it is just data, and then print it and insert it into eggs, we have that tech now if somewhat primitively. And we worry about inbreeding because of certain genetic disorders becoming more likely, but odds are good they'd have the tech to eliminate or correct or treat those. At the end of the day, you could clone your whole civilization back up from a single person and an archive of genetic and historical data. Indeed the lone survival probably isn't needed either, so you might have to make seed ships or data ships that don't contain an alive and conscious crew, and possibly with no organic material at all. See our episode on sleeper ships and seed ships for how those ships work. But they might let you send out a trillion seeds to survive an enemy attack, though they presumably can also send a trillion seeds of destruction behind you using the same tech and strategy. However, let's assume these were generation ships, and ones that could stop occasionally, maybe you can zigzag through various red giants every light century or so and that makes you comfortable to stop for resources to replenish or expand your survival fleet. That is likely to mean a dozen generations or more between stops, so it is almost a new civilization for every leg of the journey. Let's close then by discussing what life on such a ship or fleet is like. Now I've been ballparking 20% of light speed as the ship's travel time because it's on the extreme high end of what you might be able to do with a fusion drive, 
see our Fusion Proportion episode for details, and it's likely to be slower not faster, indeed under 1% of light speed might be a lot more reasonable and has some major stealth advantages we discussed in that Stealth Spaceships episode. Overall speed is your friend when fleeing, but not always as fast as you can whenever you can. Nonetheless, if we assume that 20% light speed and capacity for controlled and high efficiency fusion, then we have a civilization that can employ a lot of tricks to send splinters of itself off to slow down and harvest material and catch back up. Which means they can also run their tanks nearly dry and harvest fuel to slow the armada at the destination, so long as they keep slowdown fuel for one ship in their fleet. They are at risk, but it's doable as we saw in nomadic space-based civilizations. There's a lot to be said about having fleet elements ahead, behind, and to the side of your main fleet, in terms of detection, obfuscation, and redundancy. Ultimately, if your goal is to make the galaxy's edge, you're looking at travel times of hundreds of thousands of years, and many millions to neighboring galaxies, though there's no special reason to aim for neighboring galaxies as we'll discuss shortly. I don't know what the leaders of that fleet tell their folks on board, possibly nothing, they might not even let them know their artificial environment was artificial or moving, or they may constantly say the enemy is right on their heels thousands of years after the last distant contact. Ship captains tend to be in a good position to play tyrants even in classic ocean-going ships, let alone interstellar arcs, so they have a lot of options for maintaining control and keeping to a plan. They might be functionally immortal too, having radical life extension, being post-biological, or going on ice for a generation at a time and only emerging every few decades for a few weeks to confirm their delegates are doing what they were told. The whole civilization might be like that too. One of the main temptations in fiction for FTL or for ships moving so close to it that they are massively slowing local time passage is that it makes for short journeys for the crew but odds are we will have the technology to freeze, repair, or digitize people before we actually launch our first interstellar colony ship, so the need for a classic generation ship is likely to be greatly reduced. A post-biological crew might have a whole simulated world of a billion survivors on some ship no bigger than a modern rocket, running on the electricity needed for running one life support system for a crew of a dozen biologicals. It might opt for slowly plotting out of the galaxy, ultra-slow, and taking a hundred million years to look like a normal ejected rock. It is hard to imagine the civilization that killed them would still exist, let alone be searching after all that time. Logically though, they'd be better off going as fast as they can and sending out duplicates. The big thing though is that you don't want to be moving slower than the enemy colonizes space around them, because you can evade pursuit fleets but you cannot evade a xenophobic enemy whose main colonized space you are passing through. Your odds for detection and entrapment rise immensely if you try. So you need to flee to the galactic rim ahead of that expansion wave. You can opt to stop, if it's slow, and try to rebuild civilization, and a force able to beat the enemy back or even pursue them and liberate your own homeworld, indeed that strategy has a good chance of working eventually on any enemy who is capable of changing and factionalizing since their once great empire might have shattered into a realm thousands of times bigger, made of thousands of separate realms, many of different behaviors than their ancestors. If not, if you do have an enemy willing and able to pursue for countless generations, intergalactic space is your best hope, barring interdimensional travel, and as we discussed in our episode The Edge of the Universe, you can eventually flee over the cosmological event horizon and be safe from pursuit. Of course you might find other hostile aliens out there, given you presumably met at least one in your home galaxy, 
though you could be fleeing from your own kindred or something of your own making like artificial intelligence. Odds are good the flight will last a lot longer than the hostilities did, very much like the classic exodus out of Egypt and 40 years in a desert, only in this case the barren wasteland is interstellar space and the period wandering is likely to be 40 millennia, not 40 years. It is quite possible you would stop and settle every few millennia, going on ice during the voyage and leaving a series of detectors behind to warn of pursuit, then pack up and rush away again if it emerged. Of course many of your folks might refuse to, or you might have gotten lazy and not maintained your fleet, or expanded to keep up with the rising population on your new world. One option that's a bit grisly as a variant of our Garner-ship approach. That involves stopping for a few years to dump off your colonists at a new system, resupply, then breed new colonists while en route to the next star a few decades away. They could keep doing that indefinitely and colonize out to the galaxy's edge. But you might take the more grisly option of leaving those colonists behind to serve as a barrier against pursuit. You stop to resupply and expand, leaving some behind to colonize the system, grow and arm themselves and stop or slow pursuit. As with the Gardner ships, you might occasionally build more ships and split your fleet, to result in expanding colonial kernel wedge, out to the rim, of fortress wars the enemy has to deal with along the way. With the right technology you might be mining entire star systems out in a few centuries of lead time, turning the whole thing into space fortresses and armadas, or into explosive mines, even detonating entire stars to conceal your passage and slow your pursuers. That would make it sound like life on these escape fleets was pretty grim and dark even after the passage of the generations who remember the original holocaust that sent them fleeing. But it might not, that shared purpose and enemy might tend to limit internal squabbling, for good or ill or both, and violent encounters with the enemy would presumably be pretty rare given the timelines of interstellar travel, so they might be a lot more peaceful day to day than we are nowadays. That's probably optimistic though, there's a good chance everything is very paranoid and tight on such ships, since even one jerk with a hand radio might accidentally, or deliberately, give their position and trajectory away. One explosive incident that blew out a piece of the ship might hurt them while telling their enemy where they were. It wouldn't be like a submarine where noise has to be controlled and everything whispered and padded, there's no noise in space after all, but there would be parallel cases. Shuttles running lights between ships, even for drones inspecting the hull with active detection, could give their position away. Too much heat expenditure also could. Those ships probably never stop any more often than they must, too which for 1% light speed every light century means thousands of years between stops, equal to all of recorded human history, and probably means very firm control of population growth as a result. Smaller is better in that context, since it means less resources used and longer pauses between stops, and you might get some very heavy-handed controls on things like Creo, even caste systems. So too, It's not exactly unheard of for dictatorial authority extended from perceived necessity to some aspects of life to grow to cover other areas far beyond what seemed justified originally. You might have a pretty regimented life, you might be born in a tank, you might be stuffed in a freezer on the captain's whim until the next stop or exiled or dumped out of an airlock for disobeying. All told it might not be too hard to find volunteers to stay behind and build and occupy those fortress wards to the rear and it might not be too hard to believe they decided to switch sides if the offer was made. Again, pretty bleak, but given what they're running from and why, the alternative of sticking around or turning to fight, even if futile, might be pretty tempting. 
Of course the enemy might have the ability to worse than kill you, resurrect you for torture then killing you again every day for an eon. Or your captain might lie and say they do. All in all, it's a fate best avoided, and it's one reason I tend to assume civilizations bypass trying to hide in favor of just growing themselves bigger and stronger and doing so before an enemy emerges. But to bring this in for a landing, what actually happens once you're out beyond the galactic edge? Well, surprisingly, you do not necessarily need to set course for a neighboring galaxy. There are actually tons of stars all across the intergalactic void, even in the cosmic voids we often mention. They are rarer, much rarer, but any of them serve as potential havens for your civilization, and given the travel times you are likely to stop at them. You are also likely to have enough time to engage in a lot of atomic alchemy and building, so your enemy might be far enough behind you that you could turn that star into a K2 Dyson Swarm, complete with a Nyko Dyson Stellar Mega Laser for evaporating planets or fleets, or shoving fleets up to a hair's breadth of light speed while potentially serving as a nightmare delay for any pursuit. There is no guarantee that will stop them, they may build their own and throw their armadas behind you, on billion year chases to other superclusters or the cosmological event horizon. They may use AI that never get bored or tired and do not know the meaning of the word mercy, still it probably is the right call to flee anyway. Any enemy so monomaniacal it will chase you for eons, all the way out to the edge of the universe, is no enemy you want to turn around and fight. And a civilization that is fleeing for millions of years is still one that is existing, the Reaper is going to come one day, whether you flee or stay, whether you're hunter or hunted, but life on a generation ship in flight is still life, and probably a lot like life would otherwise be, and as long as you're breathing, possibly metaphorically if you're post-biological, there's still hope, a chance you'll gain an edge and change the game. So we have several announcements today before we wrap up but first, we were doing some math in today's episode and I try to keep that to a minimum but some topics just don't convey well without it, and one of those is plotting intercept courses, which outside the very simple case of a pure stone chase really requires a knowledge of trigonometry to do right, and there is an amazing class on trigonometry over at Brilliant that will demystify all the angles and calculations till they become easy and intuitive and very useful. If I've never mentioned before, I went to homeschooling from 6th grade on to when I started college at 16, and this was the early 90s so they didn't have much other than pencil, paper, and textbooks to learn out of, and I self-taught algebra out of an old 1950s textbook my mom got me. Then I got my trigonometry in an accelerated five-week summer class, and my first two college jobs were working in our computer lab back when the internet and home computers were still pretty uncommon, and as a math tutor for folks. One of my big gripes then was how awesome it would be to have interactive learning software instead of textbooks and dull lectures. A brilliant is that platform, and it's the hands-on interactive learning tool I wish I had when I was learning math or tutoring it. As we enjoy another holiday season and try to get gifts for our friends and loved ones, many of us know folks looking to learn science and math, and there really is no better gift than the gift of knowledge. Brilliant makes an awesome gift for any of the ambitious learners in your life, whether it's an inquisitive niece, an all-knowing parent, or the neighbor who seems to have everything, I know your curious loved ones of all ages will be excited to grow with Brilliant's interactive learning approach. Brilliant is the hands-down, best hands-on, interactive STEM learning platform out there, 
which can assist you or loved ones in learning concepts by visualizing them and interacting with them, the best way to learn. On Brilliant you can just pick a course you're interested in and get started, be it the basics or advanced. If you get stuck or make a mistake, you can read the explanations to find out more and learn at your own pace. Knowing and understanding math, science, and computer science unlocks whole new worlds, and if you'd like to start your journey to them, you can try out Brilliant for free and get 20% off a year of STEM learning. Click the link in the description down below or visit Brilliant.org slash Isaac Arthur. So I was just saying the sponsor read how tricky math is to learn from a book and since the episode comes out right after finals week for fall semester 2021 for a lot of our audience, I hope you did well in those and you had some good professors. I was pretty fortunate in that regard, especially for math as I had the same instructor, our math chairman Dr. Mona Jaffe, for all three calculus classes plus linear algebra and differential equations. He was one of my key mentors in college and the only one not a physicist, If you've benefited from having some good mentors, it's a great time to send them a thank you card or email, that always makes their day, or pay it forward and do some mentoring of your own. I was lucky to have many good mentors, Professors Mark Manley, Elizabeth Mann, and Mike Lee amongst many others in physics, and a ton of NCOs in the military, Sergeant Major Dennis Woods and Sergeants Irving Dominique, Charles Mars, and William Armstrong particularly come to mind. Thanks to all those folks and more for all the time and patience and knowledge you gave me down the years. And again I hope everyone did well on finals. Amusingly we always have a small but noticeable drop in views during dead week and finals week, especially from that age range. Presumably deep theoretical science chats aren't what folks feel like watching after cramming for exams. Now those are over it's a great chance to catch up on all the episodes you might have missed this year. As among many holidays this week, today happens to be National Movie Marathon Day. Also for audio-only listeners, this show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, and now also on Audible Podcasts and Amazon Music. That is both with and without musical accompaniment, since a lot of folks like to marathon on them to fall asleep to, and our traditional end-of-episode credit roll with music tends to wake people back up. Going into the end of another successful year, I want to thank everyone whose name shows up in those credits, and many more who don't, for all their thoughts, help, and donations of time or money to keep this show going since its inception in 2014. And as we go to wrap up this year, we still have a monthly livestream Q&A coming up this weekend, where my lovely assistant and wife, Sarah, will be reading me questions from the audience, this Sunday, December 26 at 4pm Eastern Time which is also Kwanzaa, Boxing Day, National Thank You Note Day, and Candy Cane Day. Then we'll close the year out next Thursday, December 30th, National Bacon Day, by looking at the challenges we will be facing in the next 100 years. Then we will explode into 2022 with a look at using nuclear bombs to propel spaceships. After that we will visit our most popular series, Alien Civilizations and Civilizations at the End of Time. First for a look at hibernating alien civilizations that might be waiting till nearly the end of time, then for a look at the Big Rip, the cosmological model that ends the universe early and by being shredded, and we will ask how civilizations might manage that, or manage to survive that. Now if you want to make sure you get notified when those episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed the episode don't forget to hit the like button and share it with others. If you'd like to help support future episodes, you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, isaacalthor.net. 
and Patreon and our website all linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching, we wish you various happy holidays including a Merry Christmas, and we'll see you Sunday.